Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 97, Dynamic Range, What Is It and Does It Even Matter? This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Filming with Josh podcast. Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from how to price your work to topics such as dynamic range, which we're going to cover today. Filming with Josh is a great place to come and learn all about video. And we also have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh. So be sure to go to Facebook and on the search bar in Facebook, type in Filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a continuation of this podcast and is a place where you can come and post your work, ask for feedback, and join in conversations that have to do with video. It is a private group, so we don't have any soliciting or any kind of sales, a camera gear, or anything like that. It is strictly a group to learn about videos. So go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. For those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that lately I have been putting a disclaimer at the beginning of my podcast that you may or may not hear my kids in the background. And today is another one of those days where you're going to have that disclaimer. My wife is home with the kids, so we may or may not have some kid noise in the background. Full disclosure, I can't control it. So if you hear any random screams, it's not someone dying. It is my son being upset that he spilt his Cheerios. Today's topic is all about dynamic range, what it is and whether or not it matters. And we'll start with what it is. Dynamic range can be a pretty complex topic, but I don't want to make it complex because I don't think most people would really care for the complexities of it. So I'm going to do my best to explain this in layman's terms. But dynamic range is essentially the amount of information that a camera can see above and below middle gray. So let's start with what middle gray is and what proper exposure is. And once that's explained, then I can explain dynamic range. To understand dynamic range, you have to first understand proper exposure. And to explain proper exposure, I'm going to talk specifically to video shooters today, because I do think that dynamic range is more often referred to in video than it is in photography. And the reason is, is because there are a lot of ways to overcome dynamic range deficiencies in photography by doing things such as bracketing photos where you are stacking uh, an image that's exposed for the highlights and an image that's exposed for the shadows and you're combining them in post to give your camera a high dynamic range, also known as HDR. And in photography, you can also do things such as flash pops that will fill a room, for example, to help give a room proper exposure while you expose for the windows outside. So there are a lot of ways to easily overcome a camera's lack of dynamic range in photography, whereas in video, it's a lot harder to overcome. And that's why I believe you see people refer to dynamic range in video more than you do in photography. So in saying that, today's podcast is mainly going to talk about video, and I want to talk about video in terms of log. If you are not a log shooter, you need to be a log shooter. There is literally no reason not to shoot in log today outside of live streaming or going direct to broadcast, or if you are working for another company and they specifically request for some odd reason for you not to shoot in log. But if you are going to be handling the project in post or doing any sort of post-production work on your files, there is zero reason not to shoot in log today. And I've done other podcasts where I talk about color and I explain log and how it works. And log is so simple. And anybody who tells me today, I don't shoot in log because I don't have time to grade or I don't want to grade, you are misunderstanding how log works because log is extremely easy to 
work with. It gives you a flat image with a lot of dynamic range, which again, I'm gonna explain what dynamic range is here in a minute. And then in post, to color it, you can either use a, a program like DaVinci Resolve and set your settings for color managed, and then instantly when you bring your log footage into DaVinci Resolve, it'll be colored. I mean, literally, it's already colored for you, <laughs> but it's not baked into the image, so the dynamic range is still there. Um, or you can, if you're working in a program like Premiere, you can simply add a LUT to all your footage. And I'm not talking about like a creative LUT that some YouTuber sells. I'm talking about like a technical LUT that a company like Sony or Canon or Nikon would make to convert their log footage to Rec. 709. So essentially, it is really, really, really easy to color log footage. You either add a technical LUT that converts the log footage from log to Rec. 709, which is essentially colored, or you can use Color Managed in Resolve, where you just drag your footage in and it's already colored. Or you can do it by hand. But the point is, is it's really easy. And if you think that log is hard and it's going to take all this time to grade, it's just because you're not properly informed on how you can work with log, because log is super fast. So that's important to understand, because when I talk about dynamic range today, I not only am talking to, to video shooters specifically, but I'm also talking about video shooters who work with log. Because if you're not working with log, dynamic range doesn't matter to you. It really doesn't. Because if you don't shoot in, in log, then you will never see the dynamic range in a camera, the full, the full dynamic range. If you shoot in log, you can see the dynamic range that a camera has, or raw, which is essentially log with more... Uh, information that you can mess with in post. But if you are not shooting in log, then you might as well click off this podcast because you're not ever going to see the dynamic range that your camera can capture because you're, you're, you're clipping out highlight information and you're clipping out shadow information. So in order for this to be applicable to you, you need to be shooting in log. And if you don't understand how to shoot in log, go to the Filming with Josh group on Facebook, ask questions there or watch some of the videos I've done in the, in the Filming with Josh Facebook group that show you how to color log or listen to some of the previous podcasts I've done where I talk about color and you'll see how easy it is to work in log. So all that to say is in order for this podcast to mean anything to you, you need to be shooting in log. Now once you have your camera set up to shoot in log, you next need to understand what proper exposure for that log profile is. And fortunately, camera manufacturers will actually give you that information online. So for Sony, for example, Sony outright tells you that for S-Log3, proper exposure is 41% middle gray. Now you might be wondering, what does that mean? And I'm gonna do my best to explain that. Um, but essentially, middle gray is, perceptually, it's a tone that occurs about halfway between black and white. That's why it's called middle gray. So you have white, you have black, and middle gray would be the color tone that falls in between the two, hence the name middle gray. And for setting exposure on a camera, middle gray is a great way to set your exposure because it is the halfway point between light and dark. And so thankfully, because camera manufacturers give you an actual number of what middle gray exposure should be, it makes exposing an image really simple. And that's how we can determine dynamic range. So let's back up for a second. Sony says that in S-Log3, proper exposure would be 41% middle gray. So in order to 
set your exposure to 41% middle gray, what you can do is you can go online and buy a middle gray card. Now you can go to Amazon and you can buy one that's really cheap, or you can go with a, a company like Calibrite that will make more expensive middle gray cards. And sometimes you might buy something like the Color Checker Passport, for example, which has a bunch of color chips that you can use to help um, align your color up correctly in post. And I've done videos on that in the Filming with Josh group. If you want to learn more, you can go to Filming with Josh and go to the search bar in the group and Google uh, Color Checker and you'll see different posts I've made about it, including videos that explain how I use uh, color checkers to um, align my color and post, but in the color checkers I work with, whether it's the larger one or the color checker passport, you'll see that they have a middle uh, gray bar, um, which essentially is the same thing as buying a middle gray card. Now, you might wonder what's the difference between a more expensive middle gray card or a cheap one that you can buy on Amazon, and the answer is accuracy. Um, a more expensive brand like Calibrite that sells middle gray cards that are a little pricey, they're pricey because the card is accurate. Like they know when they make it that it is actually middle gray. If you buy a cheap brand on like Amazon, it might be close to middle gray, but it doesn't mean it actually is middle gray. See, a gray card is literally a card. You've probably seen a white balance card before, right? Where you go on Amazon or B&H and you buy a white balance card. It's a little card that you use to set your white balance because it's true, it's true white. It's different than using like a sheet of computer paper, which has a blue tint to it often. And so if you set your exposure, or excuse me, your white balance to a sheet of paper, you might see that your, your image might be kind of correct, but it also might have a blue hue. So if you buy a designated white balance card, it, sh it, it in theory should be color accurate. So when you set your white balance, it should be accurate and not have a blue tone that like a, a, a computer paper sheet might have. And the more expensive the white balance card is, the more accurate it probably is. And the same is grew with, true with a middle gray card. It's just like a white balance card, except for instead of using it to set your white balance, you use it to set exposure. And it's just a card. It's just a card that is supposedly going to give you an accurate representation of middle gray. The more expensive the brand, the more accurate the card probably is. I like Calibrite, but there are other brands out there that are even more expensive than Calibrite, um, like DSC Labs, which makes really expensive uh, color cards or gray cards or white cards. Um, so I like Calibrite because they're pretty accurate. They are more expensive than what you're going to find on Amazon, but they also don't cost the same amount of money as something like DSC Labs, which makes the Xyla 21 chart that we're going to talk about later today. But Calibrite's a good option. But if you do want to save money, you can go to Amazon and get something cheaper. Just know that um, the more expensive that these cards are, the more likely it is that they are color accurate or that they are accurate for white balance or that they are accurate for uh, middle gray exposure. But either way, even if you just want to get close, if it doesn't have to be dead on accurate, but you just want something close, you can go to Amazon and just type in uh, middle gray card and just buy one, have it shipped to your house the next day, and boom, now you can set proper exposure. So all a middle gray card is, is it's just a card or, or a chip that's maybe falls inside of a color checker card that is a representation of middle gray, which again is halfway between white and black. So once you have a gray card in hand, you've bought one and you have it in hand, to set exposure, all you have to do is set your camera to showcase 41% middle, middle gray. How you do that is up to you. There's multiple ways for your camera to show you middle gray. One could be using zebras. 
A lot of people think that zebras are used for just showing you when your camera is overexposed. And you can use zebras to do that, but I use zebras and, and what is really often done in, in video is, is zebras are often used really to show middle gray. So what I might do, for example, is I might take a, a gray card and hand it to a person I'm about to interview. And then I will, in my camera, set my zebras to 41%. Because again, I shoot with Sony and Sony says that proper exposure is 41% middle gray. So I'm giving my subject that I'm about to film on an interview a gray card. And that gray card is going to be, again, just a card that is halfway between white and black. So all I have to do is make sure that my camera is set to 41% on that gray card. And to do that, I can use my zebras. And when you have a camera that has zebras, there will be settings where you can say what you want the zebra number to be. So if you say, hey, I want zebras to appear at 41%, then when you are pointing your camera at your interview subject, when you see zebras, it means that those zebras are showing that your camera is now showing 41% on the middle gray card. And that is how you set proper exposure. If you don't have zebras on the middle gray card, but yet your camera settings are set to zebras 41%, then it means that you are either over or underexposed. And so you can change your ND or your aperture or add or remove light until you see zebras on the middle gray card. And once you see zebras on the middle gray card, you know that your camera is now properly exposed for 41% middle gray. And different camera manufacturers have different numbers for what middle gray should be for proper exposure for their log profiles. But 41% is pretty common and a roundish there, whether you shoot with Nikon or Fuji or, or Panasonic or, or Canon or whatever, it's going to be around that number. But Sony says that for S-Log3, it's 41% middle gray. If you shoot with Canon or Nikon or whatever, you can just go online and look up what proper exposure is for middle gray for your camera, uh, your camera brand and, and your log profile. But for Sony, for all of S-Log3, it's 41%. So that's how I set exposure for interviews is just set my zebras to 41% and have someone hold a middle gray card. And once I see zebras on the middle gray card, I know that my camera is properly exposed to 41%. And if I have a B cam, I go over to my B camera, do the same thing, turn zebras on, set them 41%, make sure I see zebras on the gray card. And now I know that my A cam and my B cam are both set for proper exposure. It's really, really simple. And you don't have to use zebras to do this. You can also use, um, like for example, EL zone is a popular new way to uh, expose. It's similar to um, false color, but it's a more modern version that, that can um, meter and stops a light. I don't wanna dive into too much of that today, but either way, it is another way that you can show middle gray at 41%. I mean, there's a multitude of ways that you can show 41% on a gray card, but a really simple one is just to use zebras and most cameras have zebras. So if you wanna nail your exposure, just get a gray card, put it in front of your camera, wherever it is you're gonna be filming, whether it's the interview subject, you know, have someone sit there and hold the card up, or whether you're filming a room and you wanna properly expose for the room, just grab a gray card, set it wherever it is that you're gonna be filming and just set your zebras to, to whatever the percent of proper exposure is for your camera, which again for Sony's is 41%, and then just make sure you see zebras on the gray card. And as long as you do that, you know that you are properly exposed. That is how you get proper exposure. One last quick note, when I'm referring to 41%, that percentage is an IRE value. 
IRE stands for Institute of Radio Engineers. If you've ever heard someone say, what is the proper IRE value for exposing for S-Log3, for example, the, the number, that 41% number, that is an IRE value. If you look at a waveform in a program like DaVinci Resolve, the waveform will have lines that go across the, the, the screen um, and uh, on the scopes. And so that those lines, each of those lines represents a value of IRE. Zero would be like the bottom where the darkest of shadows lie. And then there might be a bar that goes across at 10% IRE and another one for 20%, all the way up to 100. And each of those lines represents an IRE value. So for a company like Sony, for example, when they say set your um, exposure for 41% middle gray, they're telling you that proper exposure of S-Log3 will be the IRE value of 41% middle gray. So that's what that's what you're measuring. It's IRE. And and again, you can see this if you go to your color grading program, whatever or whatever program you edit in, just pull up your waveforms and look at the lines that go across the screen on your waveforms. Those are exposure values for IRE. And when I say set your your zebras to 41%, it is telling you that your IRE value for middle gray should be 41%. So just understand that when I'm referring to a percentage, the percentage is an IRE value, and IRE is just simply a unit of measure, measurement for measuring light. This is really good stuff to understand too, because if you're using something like false colors or um, EL zone on a monitor, and you're running and gunning, and maybe you're not gonna use a gray card, but you wanna set exposure for someone's skin tone, you should understand what IRE values are because, for example, Caucasian skin might be measured at something like 65%. So if you don't have a gray card and you don't know what middle gray is for the scene, but you're filming really quickly and you just want to set proper exposure for someone's skin tones, if it's a, a Caucasian individual, then you know that somewhere between like 60 and 70% IRE would be a good place to um, have their skin tone value lie for IRE. So you can set your zebras to like 65%. And if you see zebras on a Caucasian person's face or skin tones, then you know that they're properly exposed. So it's just important to understand IRE values and know that that, that it's just simply a unit of measurement and that you can use IRE to measure different things. You can use it to measure middle gray, like 41%, or you can use it to measure uh, proper skin tones for someone who's Caucasian. Someone who has like a darker skin tone would have a different or lower IRE value. There are suggested IRE targets for different skin tones that you can find online. But just understanding that IRE is a unit of measurement for measuring light, and you can use IRE to help you expose for different things, like different color skins, or for something like middle gray. Middle gray is a very neutral thing to expose for, and I like to expose to middle gray because I, I, I know that if middle gray is properly exposed, then the image itself is properly exposed. So I really like to, to target middle gray when I'm setting up something like an interview so I'll, I'll bring in a, a middle gray chart or, or a color chart that has a middle gray chip and I'll set my IRE uh, value on my zebras to 41% and just make sure I see zebras and now I know my, my scene is properly exposed. But if I'm running and gunning and I, I don't have um, time to hand someone a middle gray card, I'm shooting like an event or something, then I'll just use something like uh, false color or EL zone and I will just make sure that the 
person I'm filming skin tones are falling within the appropriate IRE values for their skin tone type. And so understanding IRE and that it's just a unit of measurement and that you can use IRE values to set your exposure based on something like middle gray or skin tones, that's a really great thing to understand as you grow as a videographer or as a DP or filmmaker or whatever you want to call yourself. Um, but IRE is a unit of measurement and understanding that is really important for understanding things like dynamic range or proper exposure. Now, the reason this is important to understand is you have to have proper exposure to be able to measure the dynamic range, right? Once you have 41%, for, for example, for Sony, 41% middle gray set, the dynamic range is the amount of information that you can see above and below middle gray. So if I'm filming an interview and I have the camera set for 41% middle gray and I have zebras on the color chart and I know I'm properly exposed, the dynamic range will be the amount of information I can see in the highlights and in the shadows at the same time. The higher the dynamic range, the more information I can see in the highlights and in the shadows, and the lower the dynamic range, the less information I can see in the highlights and in the shadows. A good example might be, let's just say, let's just stick with the interview theme here. Let's say we're filming an interview and we have our zebras set, we're, we're filming with Sony, so we have our zebras set to 41% middle gray, so we know we have proper exposure. And let's say there's a window in the background behind our interview subject. If your camera has a higher dynamic range, you'll be able to see outside that window better than a camera that has a lower dynamic range, right? Because if you think about it, I mean, if you've ever pointed a camera inside a room, you probably have seen windows get blown out. And this usually occurs because you are exposing for something in the room, but the information outside the window, the highlights that are outside, that are happening outside, are too bright for the camera to capture while still maintaining proper exposure inside the room. But see, if you have a camera with a really high dynamic range, you can expose inside the room and still see fairly well outside the windows. Um, and the same is true for shadows. Let's say, again, with the interview theme here, that we have our interview subject sitting on a couch, right? Not only would the dynamic range be the amount of information you can see outside the window behind the subject, but it would also be the amount of information you can see in the shadows, let's say, underneath the couch. So if the couch is creating a shadow underneath it, the higher dynamic range you have, the more underneath that couch you'll be able to see. Whereas if your camera has um, a small dynamic range, the shadow information under the couch will become clipped and will turn black and you can't see under the couch. So the higher the dynamic range, the more information you can see outside the window and under the couch at the same time. And that is what we're referring to when we are talking about dynamic range. Now, later in this podcast, we're gonna talk about other ways that you can create a higher dynamic range without necessarily relying on your camera. Because in all honesty, if you wanna be able to see outside the window and also see into the shadows in an interview scene, there are better ways to achieve that than just relying on your camera's dynamic range. But the higher the dynamic range your camera has, the easier it is to achieve. Thankfully, there are ways you can actually measure dynamic range so that you can have an idea of how your camera will fare in a tricky lighting situation like that. Now that begs the question, how do you measure dynamic range? And there's a few different ways you can go about it, but my personal favorite is by using a Xyla 21 chart. Now, if you don't know what a Xyla 21 chart is, you can go to Google and just type in Xyla 21 and just look at a picture of it. In fact, I encourage you to do that while listening to this podcast because it will help you have a visual representation of what I'm explaining. It's really hard over an audio podcast to explain this. So 
do me a favor, go to Google, type in Xyla21 chart and take a look at it so you can better understand what I'm explaining here. But a Xyla21 chart is simply a chart that has 21 stops on it. And, and the stops are just a bar. You have like a black bar that is at the far end of the spectrum. And then you have another black bar that's a stop brighter than that one. And another one that's a stop brighter than that one. And another one that's a stop brighter than that one all the way until you get to the whitest of whites or the brightest of brights. And so there's 21 bars ranging from really dark to really bright. And those 21 different bars all represent a stop of light. And it's really important that you understand that Xyla is measuring an individual stop between each bar. Now, I think it's important that if we're going to talk about stops of light, that I explain what a stop of light is. A stop of light is a unit of measurement for measuring light. And if we increase light by one stop, we are doubling the amount of light. If we are decreasing light by one stop, we are halving the amount of light. And a good representation of this that you might be able to understand is let's just say you have a lens that has an aperture of f2.8. And most lenses increase when you increase the aperture using like an aperture ring. Let's say you have a mirrorless camera like uh, a Sony a7 V or a7 R5, I mean, something like that. If you take the aperture wheel on your camera and you increase the aperture from f2.8 and you start increasing it, typically most cameras are going to increase the aperture by one third a stop of light. So if you start at 2.8, the next stop will be 3.2, and the next will be 3.5, and the next will be f4. So since it increases in thirds, we know that the difference between f4 and f2.8 is one full stop of light. If we keep going with it, after you're at f4, the next one will be f4.5, then f5, and then f5.6. And since, again, it's increasing by one-third stop of light, we know that the jump between f4 to 5.6 is one full stop. 5.6 then goes to 6.3, 7.1, and then f8. So the difference between 5.6 and f8 is a full stop. Some cameras don't measure in thirds, but most cameras tend to measure in a third stop of light. So if we increase from f2 to 2.8, we are decreasing our light by one stop. Because if you go from F2 to 2.8, we are cutting our light in half. If we go from 2.8 to 4, we are cutting in half again. If we go from 4 F4 to F5.6, we're cutting our light in half again. And the same is true if you go the opposite way. If you go from 5.6 to F4, we are increasing our light by twice the amount or doubling our light. If we go from F4 to 2.8, we're doubling again. If we go from 2.8 to F2, we're doubling again. If we go from F2 to F1.4, we're doubling again. That's why... When you look at a prime lens that has an aperture of f1.4 versus a zoom lens that has an aperture of f2.8, for example, it's a significant difference because it's actually two stops of light faster to have a 1.4 lens than it is a 2.8 lens. The same is true when you look at something like a 24 to 105 f4 versus a 24 to 72.8. They may sound like they're really close, but f2.8 is letting in literally double the amount of light as f4 because it's a full stop faster. So that's why a 2.8 lens is so much more expensive than something like an f4 lens because the f2.8 lens is bringing in literally double the amount of light. So that just kind of explains how stops of light work. I mean, this is just one example, but a stop of light is just a unit of measurement. 
And a good, a good example of that unit of measurement is aperture because aperture is all based on stops of light. And that's actually one of the reasons I like using EL zone on my small HD monitors rather than false color because EL zone measures everything that's happening in the scene by stops of light. So if I have my exposure set to 41% middle gray, anything in the frame that is properly exposed at middle gray will appear gray. But then as things turn different colors, those different colors that are not gray, whether it's yellow, red, blue, purple, etc., those colors represent a different stop of light. And I can look at those colors and say, okay, if, if it's this one color, it's according to the chart for EL zone on my monitor, it's two stops of light brighter than middle gray. Or according to this other color, it is three stops of light darker than middle gray. So by using EL zone as a way to monitor your image versus um, false color, you can actually uh, monitor or see in your image how many stops of light above or below middle gray everything in your scene is. So if you have a lamp in your scene and it's much brighter than middle gray, it might be like five stops brighter in middle gray. And you could see that by monitoring your EL zone. So EL zone is really cool because it helps you read an entire image on your monitor by stops of light. And you can see everything in your camera, everything in the monitor, you can see what everything is doing by the amounts of stops of light it is over or under middle gray, which is a really cool way to monitor what's going on in your frame. But the point is, is to understand what a stop of light is, is it's just a unit of measurement for measuring light. And in terms of like apertures, for example, every time you increase your aperture by a stop, you are decreasing the amount of light by half. Or if you open up your aperture by a stop going from like a 2.8 to f2, you're doubling the amount of light that you're lens is bringing into the camera. So that's what a stop of light is. So when you're looking at something like a Xyla 21 chart, everything is measured in stops of light. And so one bar that is a stop of light brighter than another, and another one's a stop of light brighter than that, that is just a unit of measuring, a measurement for measuring stops of light. And those stops of light would be the exact equivalent of opening your lens up by one full stop or decreasing it by one full stop. So a Xyla 21 chart is measuring stops of light, just like an aperture would be measuring stops of light, which is also why Xyla 21 charts are very expensive. And it's not something you're gonna go out and purchase, but you can rent them, or at least watch YouTube videos of people who use Xyla 21 charts to measure a camera's dynamic range. But the idea is that there are 21 bars and every bar is exactly one stop brighter than the previous one. And so how you measure dynamic range with a camera is you can set your camera to proper exposure and point it at a Xyla 21 chart and then see how many of those bars you can see. And that's your camera's dynamic range. And so if you have your camera set to proper exposure, you're gonna be able to see a certain amount of bars to the right into the bright bright colors or, or the, the bright bars and then a certain number of bars to the left into the dark dark black colors until you can't see anymore. And that's your camera's dynamic range. You see your camera, when you point it at a Xyla 21 chart, it won't be able to see all 21 bars. It's impossible. There is no camera out there that can achieve 21 stops of dynamic range. And for reference, a human eye can see roughly 18 to 20 stops of dynamic range. So humans themselves can't even see 21 stops of dynamic range. A camera for sure can't see that many stops of dynamic range. 
So when you shoot a Xyla 21 chart, what will happen is, so long as you have your camera set to proper exposure, there will be black bars to the left that you can't see because it's too dark, and you'll have bright bars to the right that you can't see because they're too bright. But the ones that you can see, you count those number of bars, and that's your camera's dynamic range. And a really good way to do it is to record a video clip, like set your camera to proper exposure, shoot a Xyla 21 chart, and then and like actually record a clip of it and then put it into a program like DaVinci Resolve and pull up your scopes and look at a waveform and count the number of recorded bars that don't clip at the highlights or the shadows because a bunch of those bars are going to be blown out so you'll see them clipped in your scopes and a bunch of them will be clipped into darkness because it couldn't record it so at the bottom in the waveform they'll be clipped and so you just count the number of bars that your camera captured in between the clipped highlights and the clipped shadows. And the number of bars that you see is the amount of stops the dynamic range your camera has. That's how you measure dynamic range. So again, Google Xyla 21 chart so you can see what I'm talking about, but it's just a chart that has 21 stops of light from the darkest of darks to the brightest of brights, and you just set your camera to proper exposure, you shoot it, and you count the number of bars you can see, and that is your camera's dynamic range. By the way, for those of you who do want to Google this, a Xyla 21 chart is spelled X-Y-L-A. That's X-Y-L-A 21 chart. And you do not want to buy one of these because they're like $4,000. <laughs> but there are places out there that actually rent them. Or you could just simply go to Google and... Um, see who has tested the dynamic range of your camera or a camera you're interested in and find someone who's tested the dynamic range based on a Xyla 21 chart. And then you know it's probably going to be pretty accurate. See, a lot of people will be like, oh, I think my camera has 14 stops of dynamic range. Well, how do they know that if they haven't actually tested it? You have to test it to really know what your, your camera's dynamic range is. And that's really important, actually, because a lot of camera manufacturers, in fact, I would say almost all camera manufacturers, overstate the dynamic range of their cameras. RED, for example, does this all the time. They'll re release a new camera and they'll say, oh, it has 16 or 17 stops of dynamic range. And people will go crazy be like, wow, that's so much dynamic range. But then if you actually measure it on a Xyla 21 chart, you will see that that is never true. Like, it's never true. Almost all manufacturers overstep their or overclaim their dynamic range and if you actually measure it, you'll see that they are exaggerating. A good example is the Sony a7S III. The a7S III is claimed by Sony to have up to 15 stops of dynamic range, which sounds great, but in reality, if you actually measure it, it's like 12 and a half stops. It's not really 15 stops of dynamic range. If you shoot a Xyla 21 chart with it, you will see that there's 12 to 12 and a half stops of, of bars that it can pick up on the Xyla chart. And so it's not really 15 stops of dynamic range. Sony is really stretching the truth there. But m almost all camera manufacturers do this. So when you see a camera that's being released and, and that camera company is say, saying that the camera has 15, 16, 17 stops of dynamic range, don't believe it because it's almost never true you need to find someone who actually measures that camera's dynamic range on a Xyla chart in order to see what the real dynamic range of that camera is. And you will see it's usually several stops under what the camera manufacturer is claiming. So don't get all excited when you see a huge dynamic range claimed by camera manufacturer because it's almost always never true. 
Um, and fact, I would say that most cameras have in real world usage, if you shoot a Xyla 21 chart on your camera, most cameras are going to have between 12 and 13 stops. And that's pretty normal. If, if you're shooting in log on a camera to have between 12 and 13 stops of dynamic range, if a camera has over 13 stops, that's pretty incredible. Um, a camera that has, I would say the highest dynamic range today is going to be the new Alexa 35. The Alexa 35 has a measured 17 stops of dynamic range approximately, which is insane. So that is like the benchmark for the highest quality that you can get on the market today in terms of dynamic range. And there's no other camera out there that can do that. It is by far and away the highest dynamic range camera you can buy today. That is the Alexa 35. It also costs a fortune. But most cameras are going to fall between 12 and 13 stops. The better cameras will hit up to 14. But that's pretty common. If your camera is under 12 stops, that's a little bit of an older sensor or older tech today. But a good camera today that shoots log will fall somewhere between 12 and 13 stops. And remember, you have to shoot in log to see this. If you shoot in Rec. 709, you're not going to see this because it's going to clip a lot of those highlights or those bright bars on the on the Xyla chart, and it's going to clip a lot of the dark ones as well, and you're not going to actually see the full dynamic range. Now, it is important to note that when you go to edit, you are going to lose dynamic range. I think a lot of people don't think about it this way, but when you edit and you create a Rec. 709 timeline, which is the most common timeline, unless you're doing HDR, which is still not super common today, but if you're doing a Rec. 709 timeline, which is what the general color space is going to be if you're watching TV or watching something on your phone, you're going to not be able to have that much dynamic range unless your image is completely flat, right? And you don't want to have a flat image. You want to have an image that has contrast, that has color in it, right? So you don't want a flat image. So when you grade your image, you're going to be eliminating your dynamic range, unless you're doing something like an HDR timeline. So just because your camera can capture 12 or 13 or maybe even 14 stops of dynamic range doesn't mean you're actually going to see that in your final edit, because the only way you could show that in your final edit would be to have a really washed out image. But... What you can do when you shoot in log and you start with a flat image that has the most dynamic range your camera is capable of achieving is in post, you get to pick where you want the dynamic range to be. And you might even be able to do things like mask out a window and pull information back in that window simply because you shot with a flat profile. Whereas if you shot with a Rec. 709 profile, you might have blown out the window and in post there's nothing you can do to save it. Whereas if you shoot in log, mask out the window, pull the information back in that window while leaving the rest of your scene uh, properly exposed. Dynamic range gives you that kind of flexibility. But again, you're not going to ever see the full dynamic range in post unless you just have a flat image because as soon as you start grading an image and bringing down the shadows and um, bringing down the highlights or pushing up the highlights, I mean, so that you can see contrast because that's what contrast is. See, contrast is the difference between uh, highlights and shadows. And you want to have contrast. You don't want your image to be flat. So as soon as you start adding contrast to your scene or to your flat log image, you start you start bringing your shadows down. You start raising your highlights up. You start adding color and things because contrast creates color. And when you start doing that, your dynamic range is going to start to get squished out. But the idea is, again, you shoot in log, so you're achieving the highest dynamic range your camera is capable of achieving. And then in post, you can massage that dynamic range. You can massage that image and pick and choose which parts of the image gets uh, squashed out and which remains. 
that is the point of shooting in logs so that you can achieve the highest dynamic range and have the most flexibility in post. It's no different than shooting um, a raw photo in photography and wanting to have the ability to um, like highlight your subject and boost the exposure of your subject in a complex lighting scene, for example, and bring down the, the highlights in your clouds and boost up the shadows maybe a little bit. Like being able to, to, to pull out that information in a raw photograph, you're using the camera's dynamic range to be able to um, see into the shadows and see into the highlights. But you still want some contrast there or else it'll look flat and washed out. But the idea is just like a raw photograph, you want to shoot in logs so you have that kind of flexibility. Uh, and the higher the dynamic range your camera has, the more flexibility will be there. So that's dynamic range and how it's measured. It's just the amount of stops of light that your camera can see above and below middle gray before the camera either clips into the highlights or clips into the shadows. That's all dynamic range is. And hopefully by listening to this podcast, you now understand how to achieve proper exposure using a middle gray card and how to understand what a stop of light is, as well as how to understand what dynamic range is and how it's measured. That's my goal for the first part of this podcast. And also, hopefully, one of the things you'll take away from this podcast is that cameras almost always are overstated in their claims by the manufacturer on what the real dynamic range is. Because if you actually measure it, it's never, it's almost never what the camera manufacturer says it is. It's always, always, always overstated for the most part. There's a few companies out there that give a little bit more realistic claims, like Blackmagic that just released their new full-frame Pocket 6K camera. They said it has around 13 stops of dynamic range. That's pretty conservative, and it's probably pretty accurate. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that they didn't come out and say it has 16 stops of dynamic range because people would go and test that on a Xyla 21 chart or something similar and would immediately see that that's not true and that the camera really has probably closer to 13 stops of dynamic range. So kudos to Blackmagic for um, giving a pretty accurate representation of what the real dynamic range of the camera really is. So if your camera has somewhere, again, between 12 and 13 stops of dynamic range, that's really good. 14 stops is even better. If it's under 12, it's still okay, but you you really want to find something that's in that 12 to 13 or 14 stop range. That's a pretty good place to live. Now that we've covered what dynamic range is and how it's measured, I next want to talk about whether or not it's important in video work. And the truth is yes, to a degree. A good cinematographer will know how to manipulate light in order to achieve a higher dynamic range without having to rely on a camera. Let's talk about an example. Let's say you're shooting a sunrise. A sunrise is a very complex lighting situation because you're going to have a really, really bright sun, right, that's going to be coming up in the distance, and the sun is going to create really bright skies. But at the same time, you're going to have shadows that are being created from that sunrise on the landscape. And a camera with a higher dynamic range will be able to see more into the sky and more into the shadows than a camera that has a lesser dynamic range. However, if you understand cinematography and you understand how to manipulate light, you don't have to rely on a camera with a crazy high dynamic range like an Alexa 35 in order to do a good job of seeing into the sky and seeing into the landscape. You just have to understand how to manipulate that light. And that's where cinematography comes into play. So let's just take that scenario, the sunrise. If you want to be able to really see into 
the sky, but also see into the landscape, you can manipulate the light by using something that's called a graduated ND filter. What a graduated ND filter is, is it's a filter that has a clear side and a dark side. There are different kinds of graduated ND filters. There are screw-on kinds that you screw in in front of your lens, and then there's a clear side and a dark side. And then there are the more rectangular or square style that fit inside of a matte box. My graduated NDs are typically going to be matte box driven ones, but I do have a couple of screw on ones. Um, but the idea is that a graduated ND has a clear side and a dark side. And what you can do is you can put the graduated ND in front of your lens and you can point the clear side to a landscape, for example, and the dark side to the clouds. And what you're doing is, is you are manipulating the light that's entering your camera because you are using the ND to darken the clouds and you're using the clear side of the ND graduated ND filter to point at the landscape so that the landscape remains unchanged. That allows you to control the dynamic range that your camera is capturing, but without having to rely on having a camera that has a huge dynamic range. And even a camera with a big dynamic range, it's still gonna struggle because that's a really complex lighting situation. The sun is really bright and it's gonna also create really dark shadows. So a great way to manipulate that, even if you do have a high dynamic range uh, capturing camera, is to use a graduated ND and point the clear side of the ND toward the landscape and the dark side toward the clouds and manipulate the dynamic range by manipulating the light using general rules of cinematography. Just be a cinematographer and manipulate the light. Like that's all you have to do. And so there are, that is just one example, but there are a multitude of ways that you can control the dynamic range of a scene by learning how to manipulate light. Another example would be filming an interview. We talked about interviews earlier in this episode, but when you film an interview and you have something like a window in the background, for example, if you know how to manipulate light, you don't have to rely on your camera's dynamic range in order to see outside the window. Most people I meet, are afraid to use windows in their interviews. But I use windows in my interviews quite often because I think it's a really cool way to add to the depth of your interview. I don't do it always, but when I can, I do. I incorporate windows into my interviews and I like being able to see outside of the window. I don't like blown out windows because to me it doesn't look very attractive. It looks kind of unprofessional. But if you want to really add to the quality of your work, try incorporating windows into your interviews but manipulate the light so that you can see outside that window. How you can manipulate that light is by adding light to the room or by removing light from the window. It's up to you, but there are different ways that you can manipulate the light to be able to see outside a window during an interview. So let's say you want to remove light from the window. How can you do that? Well, you can gel the window. You can purchase gels online and gels come in different stops. You now know what a stop of light is. So you can buy like a two stop gel, for example, and you can show up to the location you're filming the interview and you can use a squeegee and add the gel to the window. And what you're doing is you, if you buy a two stop gel is you are cutting the light that is coming through the window by two stops. Think of it as window tent for your car. It's the same thing, but you use it in cinematography and you just go and you add the gels to the window to cut the light down um, that, that the window is letting in to the room and you can cut it down by one stops or two stops or however many stops of ND the gel is that you buy. And so the, the more stops of ND your gel is, the more light you're going to cut from the window. That's one way of doing it. Now, I don't use gels a lot in my work because gels are kind of hard to use. You have to really put them on well to not have like bubbles and things. Um, and also it takes time 
So what I do instead is I use light. I pump light into the room to be able to see outside the window. So here's how it works. If I show up to um, a, a place, a location, and I want to use a, a window in an interview, for example, what I will do is I will set my camera up and I'll set up the scene, how I want it to be, arrange the props, all that. And then what I'll do is I will expose for the window so that I can see outside the window fairly well. Um, and then when I do that, naturally, the inside of the building is probably going to appear to be really dark because I've darkened the camera to see outside the window. So how do we make it bright inside the room without relying on the camera having an extremely high dynamic range? How we would do that is we would add light to the room. So we, I expose for the windows and then I add light back in. That's how I can be able to see inside the room really well while still being able to see outside of the windows. So for me, what I would do is I have some Aperture 600Ds. What I would do is I would expose for the windows, which again is going to make the room appear dark in camera, but then I'll add my 600D lights, which are really bright, and I'll add light back into the room and make the room really bright using my 600Ds. Now, I'll be honest, it takes a really bright light in order to be able to accomplish something like that. But if you have something like an Aperture 600D or even better, a 1200D, you can pump a ton of light in the room. And by adding a ton of light to the room, it allows you to darken your camera, thus being able to see outside the window. So an easy way to incorporate windows in your interviews is to expose for the window, make it dark inside the room, but then add your own light to brighten the room back up. The brighter the light you have available, the more light you can add to the room and the more you can see outside the window. So you use light to manipulate the dynamic range of the scene so that you can see your interview subject really well, you can see inside the room really well, but yet not blow out the window at the same time. It's just cinematography. You manipulate light to be able to have the dynamic range that you desire without having to rely on your camera. And that's actually a better way to do it anyway, because even if you're shooting with a camera with a high dynamic range, a good cinematographer will still use light to their advantage because it'll make the image look more attractive because it's more natural. If you want to be able to see outside the window, an HDR image isn't the way to do it because it it, it just looks weird. You don't want to shoot a, a flat log image and, and have a log image in post so that you can see outside the window but not you know make the room appear um, too dark. You don't want to rely on that. You want to be able to have a naturally occurring, uh, a naturally appealing image um, to your viewers, and the best way to do that is manipulate is to manipulate light, not have some kind of HDR looking image or a flat log image that's not graded. Because again, when you grade your image, you're going to cut dynamic range out. But if you want to keep the dynamic range, you manipulate light so that when you go to grade your image in post, you can see outside the window, you can see inside the room, everything is nice and colored. There's nice contrast. Nothing is blown out. Nothing is clipped in the shadows. You can see everything really, really well, and it looks natural and pleasing. And the way you achieve that is through using light to your advantage, manipulating light. It's just good cinematography. Now, that being said, you aren't always going to be in a situation where you can manipulate light. And I understand that. Everybody's going to run into that in their work. I run into that all the time. If I'm shooting a run and gun doc project, for example, and I am filming inside of a, a room and I'm filming someone doing something, uh, a good example of this might be um, a few years ago, I, I shot a project for a nonprofit called the uh, Down 
uh, Down Syndrome Association of Central Texas, or DSAT. And uh, the project was where I filmed some outside interviews of a few different families of children that had Down syndrome, and they just talked about how this organization helped them to um, find the help and support that they needed um, to help their kids have the most normal life that they could possibly have. And so to shoot this project, I shot some interviews outside, I interviewed the families, uh, interviewed the children with Down syndrome, got some really cool uh, information that was my that was my dialogue for the project. And then I went to all of these families' homes. I think I think it was three families. I went to the three families I interviewed. I went to their homes and I filmed them in their everyday life, doing things like cooking, having dinner together, playing board games, um, having their kids that have Down syndrome help with laundry, stuff like that, to show them at home in their normal everyday life. But that's not a situation where I'm going to bring a bunch of lights because I was trying to be a fly on the wall. I'm trying to document a real family family in their home without interfering with it too much. The second I started, you know, would start to bring out lights and pump a ton of light into the room or whatever, I'm going to be interfering with their everyday life and I'm not going to have that fly on the wall approach anymore. I'm going to be changing the dynamic of what's actually happening at their home on a day-to-day basis. I don't want that. I want it to be natural. So I I was a fly on the wall. I was there with a camera and I just kind of documented for a day at each of these families' homes. So because of that, I wasn't able to manip- manipulate the light in order for me to see in the room and see outside the windows. So I did, in that situation, have to rely on my Sony FX6's dynamic range to help me see inside the room, but see outside the windows. And it's not going to be perfect, because when you add light to a room, that is the best way to have a higher dynamic range naturally, or to gel the windows one or the other. But I couldn't do that. So I had no choice but to rely on my camera's dynamic range. So I shot everything in S-Log3, as I always do. I filmed the family inside their homes, and I, and I had everything properly exposed. I didn't want to underexpose the image so that I could see outside the windows because that would make everything inside the home appear too dark. But I also don't want to overexpose the image to see everything inside the room because that would make the windows too blown out. So I set everything to 41% middle gray, shot a middle gray card to make sure I had proper exposure, and I just filmed them in their homes, and I just used my camera's natural dynamic range to see the most of amount of information it could see inside the room and outside uh, of the windows. And it wasn't perfect. You know, some, some parts of the windows might get blown out from time to time, or some shots inside the house might be a little dark from time to time. But that's simply because I couldn't manipulate the light. So in that situation, a camera with a high dynamic range will help you because it will help you capture more information outside the windows or inside the shadows when you cannot control the lighting. So that is where a camera with a higher dynamic range comes into play. Now, does the FX6 have the highest dynamic range in the world? No, it's got a a respectable amount of dynamic range between that 12 and 13 stops, but it's not like the Alexa 35, which has a real world 17 stops of dynamic range. And so understanding that, like I, I went into it knowing this is not an Alexa 35. It's not going to be able to capture the world's greatest dynamic range, but it's got a usable amount of dynamic range. And it's going to allow me to capture enough information outside the windows and enough information inside the homes to where it looks natural and pleasing. But if I would have worked with an older camera that had a 
small amount of dynamic range, it wouldn't have struggled in that situation, right? I would have had shadows that were crushed. I would have had windows that were really harshly blown out because the camera didn't have a decent dynamic range. So dynamic range, does it matter? Yeah, it does to an extent. In situations like that where you cannot manipulate the light or control the light in any way, shape, or form, then yeah, having a higher dynamic range in your camera does help. And that is an, just, it's just one example, but it is an example of where dynamic range does matter in your camera. But it's not the have-all be-all. And you can't, again, look at a camera that's coming out and rely on the manufacturer to give you accurate information on what their camera actually can achieve dynamic range wise. You have to see tests that are done online on something like a Xyla 21 chart and see what the real dynamic range of the camera is and just use that as a comparison. The number itself isn't the most important thing. It's just how does it compare to other cameras? And again, most cameras today are going to be in that 12 and 13 stops. Most cameras today are going to give you a decent dynamic range. But you do want to pay attention to it because you might have a camera that has an exceptional dynamic range like an Alexa 35 that comes out. And maybe that might be really beneficial for some project you have coming up. And so it's important to pay attention to what different cameras dynamic ranges are today, but you only want to figure that out, not based on what the manufacturer claims, but just based on what real world tests show on something like a Xyla 21 chart and just compare one camera to the next. And if you have a, a situation that you can't control the lighting for, and you're trying to figure out what the best camera is, then use, use the comparisons that you find online between real world ex examples of real dynamic range to help you pick your camera for that project and say, you know, like in this project uh, coming up, I know for a fact I can't use, I can't manipulate the light or, or use my own lighting. I need a lot of dynamic range. So I'm just going to go and compare a bunch of different cameras to each other, see which ones have the best dynamic range and pick from those. And that's, that's how you can use dynamic range today to help you in a complex lighting situation. But for most projects, just do your best to manipulate the light and create or control the dynamic range through your lighting and use that to your advantage. And in that case, the dynamic range that your camera has doesn't matter as much. At the end of the day, it's up to you as a cinematographer, as a filmmaker, as a DP, or whatever you want to call yourself. It's up to you and your team, your crew, to control the lighting, to create a naturally pleasing image. And if you do that, dynamic range isn't as important. But it does help in complex lighting situations that you can't control, like that Down Syndrome Association of Central Texas video I'm talking about, where you do have to tap into your camera's dynamic range. So if you do have a project coming up, or if most of your projects or in situations where you can't control the light, then shop for a camera that has a real world higher dynamic range than other cameras. But don't make that the have all be all when you're picking a camera because at the end of the day, most cameras are gonna fall between 12 and 13 stops. Most cameras are gonna have a pretty usable dynamic range today. And if you wanna really um, have a good image, it really boils down to your ability to control and manipulate light. In cinematography, when you watch movies, they're not relying on dynamic range. They are creating and controlling light. It's not the dynamic range that matters in the cameras. It's the ability to create and control light. That's what you're seeing when you watch a movie. When you are watching a documentary or running gun project, dynamic range can help you there. But at the end of the day, 
your ability to control and manipulate light is more important. So understand that. But again, don't rely on the camera manufacturers. Either rent a Xyla 21 chart, do your own testing, or go online and watch tests that people have done uh, where they compare one camera to the next. Uh, a good resource for that would be cined.com. They have um, a lab a lab section where they compare different cameras and every camera that comes out, they measure the rolling shutter, dynamic range, things like that for, for each camera. They don't typically use a Xyla 21 chart and they have an older method for measuring dynamic range. I wouldn't say that their method is the best method for measuring dynamic range, but what I will say is that it does demonstrate a form of measuring dynamic range and they do the same test over and over again for every single camera that comes out. So I wouldn't necessarily go to cindyd.com's website and take their dynamic range number. Like say they say, oh, this camera has 13 stops. I wouldn't take that to heart. But what I would say is that you can at the very least use their test results to, to compare one camera to the next because all of their results are consistent. So if you do want to get an example, a real world example of how one camera compares to another, say a Nikon Z9 versus a Sony A1, you can go to CineD's website and compare what their dynamic range results are between the Z9 and the A1. Don't focus on the number. The number in and of itself Take, you should take with a grain of salt, but you can at least use that to compare how did they determine the Z9 stacks up against the A1. If they say, if the, Z, if the Z9, if they say it has 12 stops and they say the A1 has 13 stops, then again, don't focus on the number itself, but just look at those two and say, okay, from the testing they did, the A1 has more dynamic range than the Z9. That's how you can determine those, how those two cameras stack up against each other. But a Xyla 21 chart, in my opinion, is the most accurate way to record dynamic range. And so if you really want to know the number, find someone who sh shot a Xyla 21 chart. But if you simply want to compare cameras, CineD is a good resource for comparing cameras. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. Dynamic range, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, it's a, it's a complex topic. And I don't really want to make it super complex. And I know there is some complexity to what we talked about today, but hopefully what you take away from this podcast is that dynamic range is simply the measure of light that can be captured on a camera above and below middle gray in terms of stops. And I hope that you now understand what a stop of light is. And I also hope that you understand how to set proper exposure. I hope you understand the importance of shooting in logs so that you can achieve the maximum dynamic range. And I also hope you understand that dynamic range is important in certain situations, but it is not the have all be all. And that learning how to control and manipulate light is by far the best way to control dynamic range of a scene. And that is what you're gonna find that cinematographers do on big productions more than just simply relying on a camera's dynamic range. I hope that helps. If you have questions or if you're confused about something, go to the Filming with Josh group on Facebook and post your question there. And myself or others in the group will do their best to answer it. Again, that's Filming with Josh on Facebook. Ask to join the group and I'll do my best to approve that request today. Um, otherwise, I will see you guys next week for episode number 98. See you all then. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today. <laughs>